Um, I don't know if any of you still have the uh, notes from last week, but if you don't, I've got extras. We're going to continue because we never did really finish this last week. I should have broke this down into two studies. I want to do the second half tonight, okay? Last week we focused primarily in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and tonight I want to segue and transition uh, from Romans 9 into Romans 10. And this is the, I mean, we're looking on Wednesday nights at uh, the spiritual basics of the faith, and of course we always begin with when you're trying to understand the Christian life, you have to go back to starting with how does one become a Christian, Right. How does one become a Christian? Um, Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 are two wonderful chapters of Scripture that really walk us through what it means to come to faith and confess and believe and what is going on in that process. Uh, sometimes we don't ponder that. What exactly is transpiring in the, uh, the time of conversion from someone who is not a Christian to someone who becomes a Christian? There's a lot of confusion in that. Just a little summary of Romans chapter 9 before we get into Romans chapter 10. Let's make sure we understand uh, that we are talking about something in Romans chapter 9, that salvation is of God's doing. I mean, when you read what Paul is telling us here in the book of Romans, he makes no bones about it. He, he uses this analogy. He compares his kinsmen, the Jews, right, uh, the nation of Israel, verses 1 through 4 of Romans chapter 9, just a brief reminder, he is broken over them. He is sorrowful that they are lost and not part of the kingdom, even though they are God's chosen people. And why is he broken? Because they are placing their faith in their heritage. They're placing their faith in their works of the law, in obedience to God's law. They felt, okay, we are the seed of Abraham. We are God's chosen people. We must therefore be his favorite, and we are in his kingdom, and we are righteous. And Paul is pointing out pretty clearly, what about that? Not the case. Right, So he's making a very clear argument in Romans chapter 9 about that, that salvation is of God's doing, especially in verse, uh, verses, beginning verse 11 and 12, um, speaking about how though they were not yet born and had not done their either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of Him who calls. And who is that calls? God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, calls us to repentance, calls us to uh, salvation. And in verse 13, as Paul is reminding us, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So there is a clear argument in Scripture there in the Old Testament. God chooses who He wants. He calls those to, to salvation. And then we ended last week down into verse uh, chapter 9. This again, this is just a brief summary so we can jump into some meat tonight. Uh, when we look at Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 14 through 18, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? We ask the question, is God being unfair by 
calling the Gentiles to repentance and rejecting the Jews? Is he being unfair? Uh, he says in verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 10, uh, 16. For the Scripture said to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now verses 19 through uh, 25 and 26, Paul lays out the argument of the contrast of human will versus God's sovereignty. And that, that's, a, that's a constant struggle, isn't it? Does anybody in this room like to uh, choose your own destiny? Right? And when it comes to this discussion of righteousness and salvation in Christ, Paul makes it very clear here, who can resist God's will? Nobody can. So this idea here, he lays out a pretty strong argument here that it is through God's mercy that we have any hope of redemption. And our will is in constant conflict with God. Who are we to reject and fight against His will? See, you ever, you ever talk to somebody, or maybe this is your testimony, when they, they really discuss the process to the point of salvation, they're battling and they're wrestling with God? Does anybody here have that similar experience, similar testimony? Yeah. I wrestled with God, I fought God, I hated God, I didn't want to agree with God, and, and your, the human will is strong. <laughs> but ultimately, whose will is stronger? God's will is sovereign. God's will is supreme, right? Who can resist God's will? That's what Paul says here in verse 19 of Romans chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? <laughs> Who can resist God's will? So that's the thing. Anyone who totally rejects God's calling to salvation, anyone who rejects God's will, His desire, and we're going to look at some passages here tonight where God's will and desire is that all would come to faith and He calls us. Anyone who pushes against that thinks they're winning, <laughs> but they're not. Paul makes it real clear. God's will wins. That's what makes him God. Right? And so think about this. What is the, what is the foundation of sin? What is, where did sin start? It was with Adam and Eve. Not just Eve. Men. Adam was right there too. He was guilty. It's not just the woman's fault. It's not just Eve's fault. It's both. And what did they do? They doubted God's will. That you could argue, well, God can overlook that. Well, He's a righteous God, and there must be a payment for that sin. And so we have, uh, throughout human history, inherited the sin of Adam until God's timing of Christ to come and pay the price necessary for our sin, our resistance of God's will. Verse 22 of chapter 9, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy? Remember, this is 
where he's dealing with God makes some vessels for destruction. He makes some vessels for glory. All of it continues to proclaim God's glory. Look here in verse 22. Uh, let, me, let me read that again. What if God, desiring to show His wrath, to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? So He has patience with those who reject Him, but there comes a point where God's patience meets its limit. Um, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy would be those who God brings into repentance and, and righteousness and salvation. He, he brings the, the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Clearly, God is calling these vessels of mercy. There are vessels, these vessels of mercy are representing human beings. These vessels that are designed and made to show God's mercy. Who is that? That's us. Think about that. We are made, if God is the potter and we are the clay, if you remember that, that analogy, if God is the potter and we are the clay, God has made us to be vessels of mercy that He prepared beforehand for His glory. Wow. So this idea of salvation is something that you see how God is making all of this happen. He makes us for this purpose. He makes us for this purpose of righteousness and glory to His name because He redeems us. He gives us mercy for over our sins and He redeems us and makes us new. We are, He makes us for that purpose. Now, that's why we're here. You know, the, the, the human condition or, or is always asking the question, Why? <laughs> What is the meaning of life, right? That's the fundamental philosophical dilemma. What is, what is life? What does it mean to be? What is meaning? Well, right here it tells you God made us for His glory, right? So you that. Now, let's jump down to Romans chapter 10 because we didn't get here last week. All of that was just, uh, all that was just a, a summary, of, a reminder of bringing us back to where we were. Look here at chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Let's read. Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. What does that sound like? I think it's pretty straightforward. Paul has a desire that his fellow brothers, uh, his, his, the Israelites, would come to salvation. Verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for God is the end of the law of, for righteousness to everyone who believes. We looked at this, we did look at this last week. This is what we closed with, I think. These four verses in chapter 10 really summarize the contrast between those who have faith in the law and their works versus those who have faith in Christ and His completed work. You see the difference? Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to, not to the law, not to the, the, the children of Israel, 
not just to God's chosen nation, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to who? Everyone who believes. And that's what I want to focus on tonight. How do we respond to Christ? How do we respond to this message of the gospel? This is it. Do we believe in Christ? Do we believe that what He has done is enough for salvation and righteousness? That's the key, isn't it? Verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Let's stop right there. What is Paul <coughs> arguing here? If faith in Christ is the end of all of this work that God is doing, where does the faith come from? How does one believe is the question. Because faith and belief are are, are kinsmen. They're, they're very similar. When you have faith in something, what does that mean? When you have faith in someone or you have faith in something, what does that mean? Do you trust it? What do you say, Thomas? I did an etymological study on this years ago, and so depending upon where it comes from, it actually comes from the same root as the word like to bid, like to place your bid on something. So it's really like putting your your trust in or even the value in that thing which you are subscribing to. There you go. You're, you're putting faith in the you're, you're putting you're putting a value upon something and you have trust that your value in that is real. So think about this as it relates to salvation. The heart of the lost person, the heart of the one who is not in Christ, suddenly there's this battle in their soul that God initiates. And we're going to look at that here in a little bit. And that's what Paul, I think, is referring to here in verses 6 and 7, particularly verse 7. I'm sorry, 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 of Romans 9. I think that's partially what what Paul is speaking about here. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Everything that is necessary to understand this, God has already placed there. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. So this is, this is the response to all of the tension and the battle of wills that Paul is laying out in chapter 9. There's a battle of the wills. God's will versus our sinful stubbornness will. Can I say that? Sinful stubbornness will? That's a good description of it. It's kind of like the the battle of the strong-willed child versus the stronger-willed parent. 
Hopefully the stronger willed parent wins. In this case, God is the parent who definitely always does win, right? So the question is, how do we respond to all of this tension of wills? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But where does the word for the confession in the mouth come from? That's what Paul is mentioning and referring to in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice there's two parts to this. It's, it's a dual effort. When I say dual, there's two, there's two things at work at the same time. Confession and believing. Belief and faith are very similar. Faith is putting trust in the value of something or trusting something. Believing is like embracing it. There's a lot of trust there too, but it's more than just, okay, I trust that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. No, you believe without a shadow of a doubt that's going to happen. It changes you. Faith draws you to something. Faith is something that you that draws your trust to it. Belief, I would argue, is where you where it becomes part of you, and it changes you. What point in a relate? At what point in a relationship does it change from the romantic dream to the confidence that it's going to be a lifetime commitment? Right? There is that thing that transpires in a relationship when a couple gets married. Before they're married, it's just this ooh and on ah puppy love and you make me feel good and right. And then there, there's something that transitions in the relationship where it becomes real. And it's more than just the ooey gooey stuff. It's the I believe he really loves me. There's a trust there. It's not a naive thing. It's a, you believe it and you trust it. The man looking upon his bride, he believes that she trusts him. There's something there. And so if you take that into the relationship between God and the sinner, that's the same thing. If you confess with your mouth that the Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, verse 9 is very important because we teach children in church to just say these words and they'll be okay. Just memorize this verse, just say these words out loud, and God will save you. It's almost like a hocus-pocus magical thing. How many people do you know who said, yeah, I prayed the prayer because they pray this as a prayer. They pray these verses as a prayer in vacation Bible school or in Sunday school or somewhere. And then for the rest of their adult life, yeah, I prayed the prayer when I was eight years old. Notice what Paul is talking about here. He's dealing with confession coming from the heart. That's what he's talking about uh, in in verse 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it comes from your heart, and you believe in your heart, not just lip service, not just a script. It comes from where? The heart. Right When a relationship between two parties 
harmonizes. It harmonizes not by lip service. It harmonizes as genuine in the heart. Right? That's why when relationships break up, your heart is broken because there's this connection here. When, so I'm using this analogy when it comes to relationship with God the Father with the, with the sinner. It, it's a heart connection between God who is righteous and holy and the sinner who is not. And the sinner, somehow the heart transforms and the heart changes to truly believe that Jesus did die on the cross for me. You hear, see these words? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It's one thing to have the head knowledge of the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's a heart-centered grasp where you trust it. None of us are eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. None of us are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. We can read it in Scripture, but none of us have seen it. So we have to believe it by faith. And God transforms us. God causes all this to happen. All right, let's keep reading here in verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to call on the Lord? To call on the Lord. We've got to understand this because this is, this is the spiritual foundations of the Christian life. If we, if we as a church, we teach this and we believe it and we talked about it in the membership class over the last couple of weeks, genuine conversion is necessary to be a member of any church but particularly here at Sovereign Grace, we, we hold that very seriously. If you want to be a member here, we, we would love for you to be a member here. Are you a genuine Christian? Is your conversion genuine or is it something that you're not certain about? And we really talk about this, right? So what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? I think the next verse helps. Okay. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? This rhetorical. Yes. And how are they to believe in him if of whom they have never heard? Go ahead. Call on means to know both as believing and to have heard. Yeah. So you've heard the story of the gospel. You've heard uh, that all human beings are lost sinners separated from God, in need of salvation. That's the beginning of the story. And in the, in the completion of the story is that God loved us so much, He sent His Son to die for us in our place. That's the good news. And God does the work. God's will is stronger than our will. See, the thing I want to bring out here is for too many people... Verses 8 through 10, well, actually, let's go further. Uh, verses 8 through 13, 
particularly verses 10 and 11 and verse 13. People think, what do I do to be saved? And I think that's the wrong question. We can look at passages of Scripture on that because every time the, uh, in, in the New Testament when the apostles are asked that question, what must I do to be saved, what is their answer? <laughs> Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's it. Right? Now, how do they hear the Word? How do they hear this gospel? Verse 15, I love this verse. Uh, Romans 10, 15 is, if you, if you, want, if you want to know the, the one verse in Scripture that gives us evidence and justification for evangelism, this is it, right? And how are they to preach? Uh, let's see, let's start in verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's why we have preachers. Verse 15, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So here we see both parts of the salvation process. God is orchestrating every bit of it. His will is stronger. He's the one calling. He's the one directing. He's the one convicting. Yet we have the responsibility and the privilege of being used by God to preach the good news. That's amazing. God's given us a, a pretty big responsibility to preach the gospel for the fact that other people can hear it. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Very familiar passage to some. What's going on in John chapter 6? John chapter 6 uh, begins with uh, one of the greatest miracles that Jesus performs, and that is feeding of the 5,000 with just the fishes and the loaves, right? Um, he just had, uh, he had five loaves of bread and two fish, and somehow Jesus multiplied that and fed 5,000 people plus. Imagine if you were part of that crowd and you witnessed this, this is a miracle. The definition of a miracle is an event that happens that you cannot explain that goes totally against the natural order. That's a miracle. And then Jesus leaves. This is later on in chapter 6. And He goes across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And when He gets there... There's a crowd of people who have met Him. Who are these people who meet Jesus on the other side of the lake? The people that He... Many of them were the people that He just did the miracle for on the other side of the lake the day before. They followed Him and got ahead of Him and met Him on the other side of the lake. Looking for what? More bread, more fish, another free meal. Right? That's what's going on here. And so that, that leads into Jesus' discourse on the bread of life and describing who He is. This helps us. He, Jesus is giving this lesson to these people who are coming after Jesus. And you would say, well, they're just pursuing Jesus. They must, have, they must really love Jesus. They're pursuing Jesus. And Jesus just lets them have it. He loves them, and He does it in a loving way, but He's teaching them something. Right? Verse 25 of John chapter 6. 
When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. How many people come to Jesus with that kind of an attitude? They're just in it for the bread. They're just in it for what they can get from Jesus. And Jesus knows the heart, right? Verse 27, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Verse 28, Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Notice that in verse 28. Well, note, they didn't ask the question, what must we do to be saved? What do they do? They asked the question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God. This is the only thing that we must do. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's it. That is the work of God, that we believe in Him who God has sent. And who is that? Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus who has died on the cross, who has rose from the grave, who paid the price for our sin, and that is who we believe. That's what we believe. We don't do anything. You see that? And so this believing is a work of the heart. Now, let's drop down to verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This believing in Him literally means to be convinced of. Right? Belief is a convincement. It's a state of confidence. I am convinced I am assured, my mind is set that this Jesus paid the price for my sin. That's what belief means. Right? And this, then this eternal life is guaranteed. Now, let's keep dropping down. Let's read verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44 is the factor here. This is the key. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Notice, who is it that comes to God? It's everyone who's been taught. Everyone who has heard the gospel. This is why it's, uh, this is why it's, it's, it's right to say anyone who hears the preaching of the word who hears the preaching of the gospel, God 
is calling you to repentance. I think Jesus makes a pretty, pretty bold point here. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But everyone who hears the preaching of the gospel is being drawn. Now, let's flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The desire of God is that everybody would hear the truth and that all would reach the level of repentance. And what did we, we... We understood repentance a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning. And that sermon is available online. I've had some people ask about it, but it's there. What is repentance? It's turning, right? It's not just admitting your sin. How far does admission of sin go? <laughs> It's repentance. The language in the Scriptures is repentance. It's literally stopping and turning in opposite direction. So if you're facing your sin, you stop facing your sin, and you turn all the way around, and you face Christ. That's repentance. Not only that, it's a, it's a stopping and turning around of, the, of our thoughts, our mindset. It's a stopping and turning around of our actions, our, our feelings. Everything about us totally changes in repentance. But it is a work of Christ. Because right, what we just read in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one comes to the Father unless He calls Him. You can't even turn and come to the Father unless you're called by God and you hear the gospel being preached. It's impossible to happen. Now, I want to close with one more passage that's very important. Turn with me back to John chapter 2. Because the reason I, I, I emphasize this next passage is because many people can read Romans chapter 10 and say, oh, I just have to say some words. I just have to confess my sins. You're not confessing your sins, you're confessing that Jesus is Lord, and you're believing that He has saved you from your sin. But it's, where, did we, where does Paul say this confession comes from? And the belief comes from the heart. A sense of genuine confession and genuine believing. Look here in verse 23. Of John chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, they're talking about Jesus. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Many believed in his name. The idea of believing, right? They believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows the heart. But notice the language here. These people, in verse 23, they believed in the name of Jesus. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that we must believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave. So if Paul is telling us to believe 
to confess and believe and you will be saved. Why? What's going on here in this passage? It seems like Jesus is rejecting their belief, isn't he? What are they believing in? Verse 23, they believed in his name. How? Because of what? When they saw the signs that he was doing. They believed in the name of Jesus when they saw his actions. Wow! Kind of like the people who were fed, the 5,000 who were fed, and many of them showed up on the other side of the lake wanting more bread. They were believing in the miracles. They weren't believing in the Savior. You see the difference there? And so our friends in the faith who claim that you, that you just declare and claim your miracle now, <laughs> claim your miracle today, right? It, that sells a lot of books, doesn't it? Right? Just claim your miracle today. That's what these people were trying to do. They were believing in the miracles that Jesus was doing. They were believing in His signs and His wonders. But Jesus said, I want you to believe in Me. So let's go back to this analogy of a relationship because that's what we're talking about here in salvation. Coming to Christ because Christ has come to us first. God sent His Son to us. He reached out to grab us, to love us, to bring us back home. He initiates the love. When someone loves you, right? Do you believe in them or do you believe in what they give you? Do you believe in what you get out of it, or do you believe in the person? So when you get married, do you marry the beauty that is temporary because it gives you that emotional high, or do you marry the soul of the person? Same thing with salvation in Christ. When Jesus is calling us to repentance, He's not calling us to His miracles and His signs and His wonders. He's not calling us to give us more bread. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I want you to love me. And why is that? It's because Christ loves us first. Isn't it? He loved us first. He initiated the communication. He initiated the relationship. He's Through His blood and through His life, He's calling us to love Him. That is what confessing and believing is. I believe in you, Jesus. But we get so caught up in... And we can get caught up in worship music. We can get caught up in, in wonderful... Uh, influential, persuasive preaching. But do we believe in Christ? Is that what Paul's talking about? Confessing and believing from the heart? When did you first come to realize that it is not so much what you do for God, but what He has done for you? That's a good, serious question to think about. When did you first come to realize that? Have you come to realize that? I think that right there is the first, uh, the first step to God really transforming the heart. Cause, God will cause us to realize 
that it's not so much about me as much as it is about what he has done for me. That's a, that's a major shift. The second question, why does one pray, Lord, help my unbelief? Is it okay to pray that prayer? I think so. If we're struggling to believe and we're aware of that struggle, it is appropriate to pray, God, help my unbelief. I don't believe or I'm struggling in believing. Uh, I think the act of dependence on God in this is an act of faith. Would you agree? So some, some would say, well, I just don't believe. Well, let's pray the prayer. Dear God, help my unbelief. And then lastly, the thing here that Paul is writing about too is that sometimes that in the early church, uh, there was a bold declaration, Jesus is Lord. That was a very common idea. Jesus is Lord. Uh, but the central affirmation of the Roman culture at the time was that Caesar is Lord. There was this competition going on. Is there something in your life, are there some little gods that compete with your allegiance to Christ? Is there something that is stopping that belief? Is there something that that your heart is torn between? It's worth thinking about. Okay. Amen. Okay. Well, here's what I want to close with on this is, I mean, we're going to pray tonight. We're going to transition into prayer. But if if you've been, I mean, if you're listening to Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 and you're saying to yourself, you know, I just don't believe. This is a good time tonight to pray that prayer of, Lord, help my unbelief. We can pray that. And if you know someone who does not believe, let's pray for them. Dear God, help them, help their unbelief. Stir their heart to trust you. We can do that. Um,